With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Previously on Truth and Justice. So there's a lot going on here. Jim has multiple bruises and abrasions to his face, ears, and neck. And more notable to me is the, quote, cluster of bruises on the right side of the back of his head. The theory that Jim injured and cut the back of his head by falling back against the closet shelf has been briefly discussed on our follow-up episodes. Now, that might explain the cuts mentioned earlier, but this cluster of bruises is a different story. I don't see anything in the crime scene photos that looks like it could result in a cluster of wounds in that area. And people don't typically fall backward repeatedly against the same object. When I read cluster of small bruises, I think knuckles. Could these bruises be the result of a blow from a fist? Internally, Jim suffered from subscapular hematomas, multiple skull fractures, and brain hemorrhaging. And that's all on his head. But let's not lose sight of the bruising on his face. Bruising that resulted in fractures of the orbital bones, the eye sockets, on both sides. Aside from the 31 cuts and stabs, Jim was badly beaten in the face and head, causing serious damage to his skull, brain, and facial bones. And at this point, we need to start asking ourselves two questions. How would these injuries all translate back to the attacker's hands? And how many hands does this attacker have? Last week, we spent an hour dissecting every single wound in Jim Melgar's body. Our focus was only on the sharp force and blunt force injuries he received during the attack that tragically took his life. We only discussed the facts of the report and my own personal opinions and analysis of the wounds. But this week, we're going to dig a little deeper. Today, we're going to break down the rest of the autopsy. In this section, we find the conclusions and opinions of the medical examiner as well as the anthropology report. As we move along, I'm going to be referring back to Sandy's police interrogations to see if Jim's body corroborates her story. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's 
begin with a detailed examination of Jim's body other than the wounds dissected last week. Disclaimer. Some of these words I don't know how to pronounce and some are just confusing. For the most part, I'll be reading directly from the report during this segment. I have looked up any words that anyone without any medical background might not recognize and have translated them into plain English. I'm going to do my best to stumble through the terminology, but just like last week, the full document is available on our website. Now let's get started. Physical Evidence A sexual assault kit, fingernail scrapings and clippings, a gunshot residue kit, the bags from the hands and the plastic container in the body bag are submitted in sealed packages as evidence. The results from any testing completed on these items will be covered in our upcoming forensic episodes. Internal Examination All organs are in their normal anatomical positions. The subcutaneous fat of the abdominal wall at the level of the umbilicus measures half an inch. Basically, everything is where it's supposed to be and Jim was in great shape. Body Cavities See description under Evidence of Injury. No adhesions are present. The wounds to Jim's body cavities were described in last week's episode. As a quick recap, he had stab wounds puncturing his abdomen and chest. Cardiovascular system. See description under evidence of injury. The heart weighs 260 grams. The pericardium has trauma as previously described. The epicardium and endocardium are smooth and glistening. The foramen ovale is closed. The coronary arteries have a normal distribution over the surface of the heart and exhibit no significant atherosclerosis. All valve cusps and leaflets appear thin and freely mobile. The tricuspid valve circumference is 12 centimeters. The pulmonic valve circumference is 5 centimeters. The mitral valve circumference is 9 centimeters. The aortic valve circumference is 6 centimeters. The left ventricle free wall measures 1.4 centimeters in thickness, and the right ventricle wall measures 0.2 centimeters. The myocardium is red-brown, firm, and has no focal abnormalities. The intimal surface of the thoracic and abdominal aorta exhibits fatty streaks and no significant atherosclerosis. Basically, what this is saying is Jim's heart was in normal condition. As we discussed last week, the pericardial sac around the heart was punctured and was hemorrhaging, but the heart itself was untouched. Respiratory system. See description under evidence of injury. The right lung is collapsed and weighs 480 grams. The pleural surfaces are smooth and shiny. The functional tissue of the lungs is pink-red with multifocal hemorrhages on the right due to trauma as previously described. The pulmonary arteries contain no emboli. The major bronchi and trachea have tan-pink mucosa lined by a small amount of pink-tinged fluid. As described last week, the stab wound that severed the pleural sac around the right lung caused hemorrhaging into the space between the sac and the lung. The lung itself was collapsed but not punctured. Therefore, no blood was found in Jim's windpipe or bronchial tubes. Only what's described as, quote, a small amount of pink-tinged fluid. Other than that, his lungs were in perfect condition. Big word I can't pronounce system. This is the system consisting of the liver, gallbladder, and bile ducts. See description under evidence of injury. The 1,190-gram liver has a smooth, glistening capsule covering soft pink-brown functional tissue. No fibrosis is palpable or visible. The gallbladder wall is intact and no bile is present. 
the cystic duct appears patent and no calculi are present. The liver took the worst of the damage to Jim's body during the attack. As I'm sure you remember from last week, it was punctured by several stab wounds. Digestive system. See description under evidence of injury. In parentheses, it says pancreas. The tongue is pink-red and has no intramuscular hemorrhages. The esophageal mucosa is gray-white and smooth. The stomach contains approximately 350 milliliters of tan liquid with partially digested food particles. No intact tablets or capsules are identified. The pleurus is intact. The proximal duodenum mucosa is unremarkable. The small and large intestines are unremarkable externally. The appendix is present. The head of the pancreas has hemorrhages as previously described. The rest of the pancreatic tissue is pink tan and has a lobulated appearance at cut sections. We can learn a lot from the doctor's analysis of Jim's stomach contents. Firstly, this is probably the best indicator that we have in regards to time of death. Factors like lividity and rigor mortis seem to be consistent with a time of death around midnight or 1 a.m., but there's also a wide range of factors that could affect that analysis. There's a very broad window of time frames for lividity and rigor to become fixed. As I've stated previously, the best indicator of time of death are known factors, such as when was the victim last seen alive and when was their body discovered. That's our first window. In Jim's case, excluding Sandy's statements, he was seen on a surveillance video purchasing drink mixers at CVS. The receipt for the mixers, which is up on our website, is timestamped at 9.33 p.m. Then we move to the other end of our window, where Maria first discovered Jim's body at about 4.35 p.m. the next day. So that's where we start. We know that Jim died between 9.33 p.m. on Saturday and 4.35 p.m. on Sunday. Next, we can go ahead and take a look at the lividity. Lividity on Jim's body was fully fixed on the posterior and involved several visible fixed pressure marks. Now, the range of times for lividity to fully fix are broad and affected by a number of environmental factors. The generally accepted range for lividity to fix is between 6 and 12 hours. Considering that Jim's body was inside in a climate-controlled house, I think that we're safe to use that range. So therefore, we can assume that Jim had been deceased for a minimum of six hours before he was found. In short, with that information, we can close our window for the time of death down between 9.33 p.m. on Saturday, when he was seen at CVS, and 10.35 a.m. on Sunday, allowing six hours for lividity to be fixed before discovery. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, overprohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. 
Rigor has a wide range of set and breakdown times and is even more affected by environmental factors than lividity. And since rigor wasn't really assessed until Monday morning, after the body had been stored in a refrigerated cooler, we can't really use rigor mortis as a factor. But we can further narrow the window for time of death by factoring the amount of time it takes to drive to the Melgar's house from the CVS. Since we know where he was at 9.33 p.m., and the evidence suggests that he was killed in the exact location where he was found, travel time then becomes another factor. Cutting our window down roughly to between 10 p.m. and 10.35 a.m. But that's still a 12 and a half hour window. And that's where the digestive system comes in. Let's jump back to known factors first. We know that Jim and Sandy ate at Los Cucos on Saturday night. We have the Los Cucos receipt in evidence and it's available on our website. The bill was printed at 8.59 p.m. Presumably, Jim and Sandy were done eating at that point. So let's start the digestive clock at 9 p.m. In order to get a better grasp on how the digestive system factors into time of death determination, I opened up Dr. Warner Spitz's textbook, Medical Legal Investigation of Death. This text is widely revered as the Bible of forensic pathology. Spitz's book states, quote, Light meals are usually present in the stomach for up to one and a half to two hours, medium meals up to three to four hours, and heavy meals for four to six hours or more. In Jim's case, the size of the meal is kind of tough to figure out. According to the receipt, Jim ate a meal called El Warachi, spelled G-U-A-R-A-C-H-E. I looked it up, and it's no longer on the Los Cucos menu. But according to Wikipedia, Warachi is a popular Mexican dish consisting of masa dough and smashed pinto beans placed in the center before it's given an oblong shape. It's a fried masa base, and is usually topped with salsa, onions, potatoes, cilantro, and some kind of protein. In Jim's case, according to Sandy, he had beef on his. His meal was only $11.99 as opposed to Sandy's $14.99 fish Cancun. So I'm inclined to assume that it wasn't a huge meal. But then we have to consider the free chips and salsa, as well as the fact that they took some leftovers home. For the purposes of time of death, I'm going to shoot down the middle and call Jim's dinner a medium-sized meal, which, according to Spitz, would be completely gone from the stomach after a maximum of four hours, give or take. Since the autopsy states that Jim still had, quote, partially digested food particles, end quote, we can estimate that he died within four hours of 9 p.m., Again, give or take, depending on the size of the meal and some other factors. Using four hours as the maximum, since there was still some partially digested food in his stomach, we can now narrow our window for time of death down to between 10 p.m., when he got home from CVS, and 1 a.m., when the food likely would have been evacuated from his stomach. And now we're getting somewhere. The next page of the text helps us to narrow down the time of death even further. From the text, quote, It has been found that under normal circumstances, stomach contents, which are readily identifiable by naked eye inspection, were usually ingested within a two-hour period. End quote. According to the autopsy, the food in Jim's stomach was not, quote, readily identifiable by naked eye inspection. Rather, notes in the report refer to the food as, quote, partially digested food particles. End quote. The food had broken down to a point that the ME couldn't identify what type of food it was. 
Therefore, we can move the front end of the time of death window back from 10 p.m., based on their arrival back at home, to 11 p.m., two hours after receiving their bill at Los Cucos, leaving us with an estimated time of death window of between 11 p.m. and 1 a.m. So how does the examination of Jim's digestive system line up with Sandy's statement to the police? Sandy states repeatedly that she is only estimating actual times, but she does give us a general narrative with an order of events. According to her statement, the couple left for dinner around 8 p.m. Here's Sandy explaining what the couple ate for dinner. What'd you order? Powder fish. According to Sandy, Jim had beef for dinner and she had the fish. This is consistent with the receipt and the autopsy report that lists the color of the stomach contents as tan. But then we also have to consider the strawberries. Those would have been eaten much later and should have been visible with the naked eye by the ME. We would also expect to find seeds in the stomach contents had Jim eaten any of the strawberries. You said that that's why he brought the strawberries and the whipped cream, that nobody ever ate any. No, we didn't because... When he got back in the tub, he had left them on the sink uh, far away, like kind of far away. So we, when, when he did get out, he handed them to me. I ate one, and then I thought, well, I'll take them to the bedroom. We had the whipped cream, but not the strawberries. Sandy says that Jim never ate the strawberries, and that's consistent with the report. Lastly, let's see what Sandy has to say about what Jim drank in the tub. The liquid found by the ME in his stomach was tan in color. Here's Sandy explaining what Jim drank that night. But you already had what kind of drinks in there? What kind were we drinking? Yeah, what did, what did you take in there? He was drinking Coke, rum and Coke. Did you take the rum in there? He had a flask. Okay, yeah. all right. And, and I had Sprite with... Again here, her statement matches the physical evidence. Before we move on from the digestive system, it should also be noted that, quote, no intact tablets or capsules are identified, end quote. All this means is that there were no pills found in Jim's stomach. Now let's move back into the autopsy. Genitorinary system. Each kidney weighs 100 grams. The subscapular surfaces are smooth and slightly lobated. Cortices are pale and of normal thickness. The calices, pelves, and ureters are unremarkable. The urinary bladder wall is intact and urine is present. The mucosa is tan and wrinkled. The testes and prostate gland are unremarkable externally and on cut sections. Everything's normal with Jim's kidneys, bladders, testes, and prostate. Reticuendothelial whatever system. The 90-gram spleen has a smooth, intact capsule covering dark red-purple, moderately firm tissue with indistinct white pulp. No lymph node groups are enlarged. The spleen and lymph nodes are normal. Endocrine system. See description under evidence of injury. 
The thyroid gland has a normal shape and size and uniform pink-red tissue. The right adrenal gland has hemorrhage as previously described. The adrenal cortices are golden yellow and thin, and the medullae are thin and gray. So no issues with the thyroid, but the right adrenal gland, which is located near the kidney, was damaged during the attack, as mentioned last week. Musculoskeletal system. See description under evidence of injury. The skeletal muscles are pink-red and normally developed. Last week, we covered all the wounds to Jim's bones, most notably the skull fractures, broken eye sockets, and the nick to his sternum. Neck. See description under evidence of injury. The hyoid bone is intact. The thyroid and cricoid cartilages are intact. The hyoid bone is something we typically look for for evidence of strangulation. Oftentimes, it will be broken in the process. But in Jim's case, his is intact. Head. Central nervous system. See description under evidence of injury. The brain weighs 1,430 grams. The external and internal structures of the cerebral hemispheres, brainstem, and cerebellum appear normally formed and have no evidence of natural disease. As far as evidence of injury is concerned, last week we covered the multiple skull fractures as well as the various brain hemorrhages that resulted from the attack. Other than that, Jim's brain was that of a normal, healthy man of his age. Histology. Representative sections of the heart, lungs, liver, kidneys, and brain are submitted. And lastly, toxicology. Three tubes of femoral blood, two tubes of heart blood, and one tube container each of vitreous humor, stomach contents, liver, and brain are submitted. The results of the toxicology test are listed in the lab report a couple of pages down. This is another section where we can test Sandy's statement for corroboration. During her interview, when asked how many drinks she and Jim had, she said that she had two and Jim had three. You know, drinking that whole time that y'all were sitting there? We didn't drink much. I think if I had two, I don't even think I finished the second. And he might have had three. He would have had three, is what she said there at the end. Jim was a 52-year-old, 125-pound man at the time of his death. Sandy says that he had three rum and cokes during the time that they were in the tub together. So how does this compare to the evidence? The analysis of Jim's stomach contents revealed 350 milliliters of what's described as tan liquid. Rum and coke are tan in color, so that checks out. But what about his blood alcohol level? Did he actually drink alcohol that night? According to the tox screen performed by the Harris County Institute of Forensic Sciences, Jim's blood had no drugs present whatsoever. He was tested for acetone, methanol, isopropanol, amphetamines, methamphetamines, cocaine, metabolite, and fencyclidine. None were present in his system. Alcohol, on the other hand? Now that's a different story. At the time of his death, Jim's blood alcohol level was 0.06. Now, that's under the legal limit for operating a motor vehicle. Meaning that according to the cops, you're still able to drive and control a vehicle at that point. Basically, Jim wasn't drunk. It is, however, exactly what you would expect his blood alcohol to be if he had drank two to three drinks in the hour or two right before his death. Just like Sandy said. 
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Next, let's move on to page 15 of the report. Pathologic Diagnosis. This section is where the ME both summarizes her findings as well as presents some of her conclusions, some of which may surprise you. From the report. Multiple sharp force injuries. Section A. 31 total injuries. Torso with 7 stab wounds and 6 incise wound clusters. Head with 9 incise wounds, some with blunt characteristics. Extremities with 9 incise wounds consistent with defensive type injuries. Part B. All stab wounds penetrate front to back. Other directions of penetration are variable. Now pay close attention to point C here. From the report, quote, Some wounds on the skin with characteristics suggested of serrated weapon. If Dr. Paneri is correct here, the state has a big problem. Or more to the point, I have a big problem with the state's theory. Several of the wounds were made with a smooth edge, non-serrated knife. Most, in fact, but not all of them. Some were made with what appears to be a serrated knife. So what's the theory here? Sandy came at Jim with two knives, one in each hand? And then what? Puts one of them in the bathtub and disappears the other one? This is a clear indicator that Jim was attacked by more than one person. As if the 50-plus injuries and the ankle bindings weren't enough to figure that out already. Now let's get back to the report. Point D. Longest stab wound, SW3, on right upper chest, 1 and 3 quarters inch. Maximum depth of penetration, approximately 3 inches, SW4. Injuries. Penetration of right lung, SW4. Intercostal muscles and ribs, SW3, 4, 5, 6, IW8, and SW10. Liver. IW8, IW11, and SW13. See also Report of Anthropology Consultation. Pericardial sac was damaged by SW10, and the right side muscle coming off the sternum was injured by incise wound number 1 and incision of the skull. IW19. Point G. Angles. Some wounds with one tapered angle and one blunt angle. Stab wounds 3, 4, 5, 6, and 9. Point H. Margins. Some smooth, some abraded. Point I. Wounds on the head mixed with blunt and sharp force characteristics, including abrasions extending onto the skin and tissue bridging. And now, stand by for another blow to the Sandy Did This Theory. Point J. Few wounds with perpendicular incise wound extending off one edge, suggested of a defect characteristic of blade of instrument. 
What the report is saying here is that some of the wounds were made with a knife with a defect on the blade, like a chip or a bent section. The problem is, the knife in the bathtub had no such defect. The report continues on with the blunt force injuries. Section 2. Blunt force injuries. Point A. Contusions of the right side of back of head with skull fracture and contusion of brain with subarachnoid hemorrhage. Point B. Bilateral orbital plate fractures. Part C. Contusions and abrasions of extremities and torso. Part D. Multifocal subcutaneous hemorrhages associated with overlying skin wounds. Section 3. Found in closet of residents with loose telephone cord bindings around ankles and loose red rope around torso. We're almost home. The last section of the autopsy is the anthropology consultation. This is where the ME asked to have Jim's chest plate examined in an attempt to determine the type of knife used to make the stab wounds that caused the nick in his sternum. I'll read you this section in its entirety. On December 24, 2012, Dr. Escobar Alvaranja, forensic pathology fellow under the supervision of Dr. Hayden Paneri, assistant medical examiner, requested a tool mark analysis of the chest plate of ML12-3925. The chest plate held within a water-filled container labeled with the case number was transferred from the toxicology room to the anthropology laboratory for analysis. The water was replaced with formalin, and after fixation, the excess soft tissue was removed manually from the specimen. The cut marks located on the costal cartilage of right rib 4 and the combined costal cartilage of left rib 7 through 10 were opened with a single scalpel cut extending from the tip of the cut mark. The cut surfaces were cast with microsil casting material. The cartilage and cast were examined with digital microscope and were photographed. After analysis, the chest plate was returned to the formalin-filled container labeled with the case number and stored in the histology tissue storage room. The casts were sealed in an evidence envelope labeled with the case number and stored in the anthropology laboratory. A total of four cut marks are present on the chest plate of ML123925. The cut mark is located along the inferior border of the costal cartilage of right rib 2. The tool skimmed the surface of the cartilage, creating only a single cut surface. The dimensions of the cut surface are 12 millimeters long and 8 millimeters wide. A single subtle striation is present in the approximate middle of the surface. A V-shaped cut mark is present on the superior border of the costal cartilage of right rib 4. The cut marks extend 9 millimeters into the cartilage. It is oriented up into the right to down into the left, with a point placed down into the left. The dimensions of the cut surfaces are approximately 7 millimeters long and 7 millimeters wide. The cut surfaces are smooth. So what we're finding so far is that there were more cuts to Jim's ribs than were noticed during the autopsy, which is normal. That's why Paneri requested this consultation. Now back to the report. Two cut marks are present in the combined costal cartilage of left ribs 7 through 10. The cut marks intersect with one oriented superior inferiorly and the other mediolaterally. The first oriented cut mark is 23 millimeters in length. The mediolaterally oriented cut mark is 12 millimeters in length. A small wedge of the cartilage formed by the intersecting cut mark is displaced and not received with the specimen. Five cut surfaces available for casting. One cut surface is 10 millimeters long and 11 millimeters wide. 
The surface is marked by two well-demarcated striations with an inner striation distance of 1.1 millimeters. Also, several more subtle striations are located between the well-demarcated striations with an inner striation distance range of 0.09 millimeters to 0.42 millimeters. The second cut surface is 8 millimeters long and 10 millimeters wide. Small area of the surface is smooth without striation. The remainder of the surface is rough, consistent with the cartilage tearing as opposed to being cut. The third cut surface is 6 millimeters long and 11 millimeters wide. It is smooth without striations. The fourth cut surface is 9 millimeters long and 11 millimeters wide. It is marked with very subtle, irregular striations. The inner striation distance are not measured. The fifth cut surface is 11 millimeters long and 11 millimeters wide. It is marked with subtle, irregular striations. The inner striation distances range from 0.17 millimeters to 0.48 millimeters. Okay, so I know that sounded very confusing and there were a lot of measurements there, but basically what they're finding is that several of these cut marks that can be molded based on the marks they made on the rib bones are all indicating that there was something wrong with the knife. In this next paragraph, which is the last we're going to be discussing today, the examiner gives their conclusions as to what the knife looked like that made all the stab wounds. The cut marks are consistent with a bevel edge tool. The majority of the cut surfaces are smooth, indicating a portion of the tool is non-serrated. The cut surfaces with the irregular striation suggest the beveled edge tool is marked with use defects. However, a tool with a primary and secondary striation pattern cannot be excluded as a possible weapon based on this analysis. The beveled edge tool would be a knife, so no surprise there. But the report says that the majority of the cut surfaces are smooth, which is indicative of a non-serrated knife. Now, keep in mind that this study was only conducted on the chest plate. Remember that Paneri's assessment of the rest of the wounds on Jim's body was that some of those could have been made with a serrated knife. A clear indication here that there appears to be at least two knives. This report concludes by stating the same thing that Paneri stated in her report. That the knife used to make some of these wounds has some sort of a defect on the blade. And I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to go to our website and look at the photos of the knife that was found in the tub and tell me if you see any defects on that blade. And that concludes the autopsy report. What we find in these source documents are just the facts. Clear descriptions of wounds and internal injuries, tox screens and blood alcohol levels. But once a case goes to trial, things get twisted. Pre-trial, there are battles, refereed by judges, about what evidence the jury gets to see and hear. And that battle continues throughout the trial with objections, cross-examinations, and bench conferences. At the end of the day, the jury doesn't get to hear what you just heard. In Sandy's case, the jury only got to hear the final, polished testimony that was allowed in. That's how they determined Sandy's innocence or guilt. Not from this report but Dr. Paneri's trial testimony. That's next week on Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. 
All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Our Season 6 logo was also created by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our banner images and type font across all of our logos was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Britta Bliss, Sarah Colby, Rachel Timberman, and Liz Rose. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 per month, and we also have reward levels on the Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truthjusticepod, and my personal Twitter handle is at bobruftruth. And for more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at truthjusticepod. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. <laughs>